Welcome. You may be a member at Rochester Church of Christ, or you may follow us regularly online, or you may have been referred to this by a friend. Either way, we're glad you're here. This is Adam Hill, Minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I hope that this message will speak into your life with the good news about Jesus. And I'm going to choose today's reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I want us to read verses 19 to 23. The Bible says, Though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Heavenly Father, as your people, please God give us the courage and the strength to become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might save some. God, I pray that you will work powerfully through us because we are fearlessly following you to reach those who don't know you yet. Speak today, Father, for your children are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Now you may be seated. Today we come to the conclusion of our study through the book of Acts. Now, we have not studied every chapter and verse of the book of Acts, but we have explored what it means to be a Jesus community in this world. You see, the first century church was striving to be the person and work of Jesus Christ in their time and place. And just like them, we carry that same calling to be the person and work of Jesus Christ in our time and place. And so what does it mean to be a group of people who turns the world upside down? And today, as we spend time in Acts chapter 17, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be there today. You're going to run into the verse from which this sermon series has taken its title, Acts 17, 6. All right? Now, as we come to Acts 17, we should note what happened in Acts 16 just briefly when we began chronicling what, was no, what is known, for those of you who got really excited about Sunday school class, you may have remembered someone talking about Paul's second missionary journey. That starts in chapter 16. So we are in Paul's second missionary journey. Happens about five years after his first missionary journey. Okay, so a little time passes between 15 and 16. But in Acts 16, we start the second missionary journey. It starts in a region of the world known as Macedonia. Paul feels called there. Ends up in a region where the capital of that region is Philippi. There's going to be a book written to them that you're going to know in your Bible called Philippians. Okay, but he starts in Philippi. At the end of 16... 
Paul has been kindly asked to leave and not return to Philippi after just a little time in jail and another prison opening earthquake. But this time it was different because Paul and Silas didn't leave this time. Right? The last time we had the prison opening earthquake, Peter's like, I'm out. Uh, and he bounces. Paul and Silas stay there and they end up converting the guy that's watching them and his whole family. Nevertheless, they get pardoned uh, and then there's some discussion about whether or not they ever should have locked them up in the first place, seeing as how Paul's a Roman citizen. This is alarming news to those people in charge. And that's when they decide, you know what may be best here is if you leave and never come back. So Paul moves on. <clears throat> and he moves on to a place called Thessalonica. You will recognize that city because there's, a book, there's two books in your New Testament written to the Thessalonians. Okay, so the places that Paul is going and starting churches, he's going to write letters to them that are going to comprise a large portion of the New Testament. He goes to Thessalonica, and I want you to join me in Acts 17. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Okay, so as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue. This is the way Paul kind of does it. He goes into a new region. He finds himself the synagogue where God's people are meeting. And then he's going to go in and he's going to do three things with them is what the text says. If you're paying attention in chapters or in verses 2 and 3, he does three things. First thing it says he does is for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasons with them. Okay, now the word here for reason, the Greek word there is the, is the word from which we grab the word dialogue. Okay, so he's going to talk with them. They're having a, a dialogue, a conversation about the scriptures. So he's reasoning with them. He's dialoguing with them. The second thing that happens is you notice on, in verse 3, it says he reasoned with them, then it says he explained the scriptures. Okay, he's going to explain and teach from the scriptures. And the third thing that happens is it says he proves. Okay, the word for explain literally means to open up. Okay, so he opens up the scriptures with them. All right, it's what I hope to be doing right now is opening up the Bible, explaining the Bible. That's what the teacher's responsibility is. I want, I want, to, I want to explain. And then he says he proves, and the word here can mean demonstrating. Okay, he's proving uh, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. All the things he's doing, reasoning, explaining, proving, dialoguing, opening, demonstrating. What's he demonstrating? He has some very serious things that he's demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. Who Jesus is, is the first thing he's trying to talk to these people about. The next thing he wants to talk to them about is what Jesus did. Okay, so if, so, you know, you look, at, you look at that and that's what he's doing. Who Jesus is and what he did. That's the content. Now, there are going to be reactions to that. And by the way, if I, if I, if, if, if I had to say, what is this portion of Scripture? In, in, in some ways, this is, this is the pastor's responsibility. 
okay? To reason, to explain, and to, and to prove from the Scriptures who Jesus is and what He does. That's our job. All right? There are some interesting reactions. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas. As did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. That's worth noting because what you find out is there in the synagogue, it's not just Jews. When we head out into the Gentile world, the synagogue could include Jews, but also could include other folks. Gentiles who were God-fearers, who wanted to learn about God. Okay, and so here, here we've got this group that are being convinced and persuaded by what it is that he's doing. Now, that's not the only reaction. Look at verse 5. Because sometimes when you do the work of God, there will be people who will receive it and be blessed by it. Sometimes when you do the work of God, there will be people who do not appreciate it. Okay, look at verse 5. But the other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. That's where you find bad characters. I've been to the mall. Um, <clears throat> Hey, all right, so um, he rounds up some bad characters from the marketplace. They form a mob and they start a riot in the city. They start a riot. And then after that, they rush to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas to bring them out to the crowd. Apparently Jason's house is where they're staying. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Okay, these men who have caused trouble all over the world, that literally, who have turned the world upside down. Their description of who the church was and what they were accomplishing by carrying the gospel was these people who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. That what they're saying and what they're doing works so against the set of values, the set of customs, the set of expectations we have about this world that we can't even think of it as the place that we call home. And then there's an accusation. Jason's welcomed them into his house, verse 7. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. There is another. These people have turned the world upside down because they're saying there is another king besides Caesar. They're saying that Caesar is not Lord. They're saying that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, and this is, this accusation is true. It's all true. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then we are a threat to the values, the systems, and the ways of this world. As a result, in verse 8, it says, they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Thrown into turmoil. So they're going to make Jason and the others postpone and let him go. What we're going to find out is that Paul needs to leave again. So he's kindly asked to leave Thessalonica. Look at verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. 
Now, on arriving there, what do you think they do? What's the custom? Go to the synagogue. That's right. We got a plan here. We go to Berea. We're going to go to the synagogue. That's what we do. We're going to start talking about Jesus. So here's our customary approach. Now, I like this customary approach. They like it here because the, the, the audience here is a little more receptive. They are more noble. They were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Okay, so, so I, I want to point this out, that if in the first story in Thessalonica, we looked at it and I said, now this is the pastor's responsibility. This is the pastor's responsibility to dialogue. To reason. It's the pastor's responsibility to explain and open up the scriptures. It's the pastor's responsibility to demonstrate or prove the scriptures. Here in Berea, I want to welcome you to see the congregation's responsibility. Because the first thing they do is they receive the message with great eagerness. They receive the word. And then the second thing they do is what? They examine the scriptures. They receive the word and then they examine the word. That's your responsibility. Ideally, I'll always be right. <laughs> but I'm human. And so it might be wise to have a group of people listening who will say, I'm looking in my Bible, and I need you to say it again because I didn't see what you were saying. We're going, we're going to study and examine the Scriptures together to find out if what we're talking about is actually the truth. Now, there is another positive reaction. As a result, verse 12, many of them believed. Also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But then verse 13, there's also a negative reaction. But when the, new, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too. Just can't let anyone have fun. Agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately kindly asked Paul, to head on. So they send Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stay at Berea. Those who escorted Paul through or brought him to Athens uh, and then left with instructions for Silas and, Silas and Timothy to come and join him as soon as possible. Now, if you're keeping score in the book of Acts, this is the fifth time Paul has had to leave a city because things are getting a little rowdy. That this is the fifth city that Paul has been run out of because of his preaching. What is interesting this time is that he leaves behind Silas and Timothy. This tells me two important things about Paul that are worth mentioning. One, it means that Paul didn't think that they absolutely had to have him in order for God's work to continue. Paul wasn't so protective of the work he was doing that he couldn't hand it off to someone else and say, you carry the ball now. Others could do what he was doing and he empowered and trusted them to help. Second, it means that Paul cared more about discipleship than just conversion. 
If all he cared about was conversion, there's no need to leave anyone. If all he wanted was to make some people believers, he could have brought his whole crew with him when they headed to Athens. But he doesn't just care about their conversion. He cares about their discipleship, their growth as disciples. And so he leaves them there so that they will continue receiving and and examining the word together. And he'll go on. Okay, now all of this has been setting us up to get to Athens. And in Athens, I want to talk about a few things. I want, I, want, I want you to pay attention to what he does in Athens as he lives on mission, as he talks about what it means to be a people on mission. In particular, I want, I want you to pay attention to what he saw, what he felt, where he goes, and what he says. What he saw, what he felt, where he goes, and what he says. Let's start in verse 6. Or I'm sorry, 16. <clears throat> While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, okay, he was waiting for them, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. When he looks at Athens, and I want to be clear about this, Athens is an amazing city. Still is, but back then it was amazing. But I, I need you to understand, it was, a, it, it was several hundred years past its glory days. Okay, when, 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 when Plato and, and Aristotle are roaming the streets doing all the philosophy and it's the ph- philosophical hub of the world, <clears throat> that was several hundred years ago. Now, don't get me wrong, they've still got all the structures, all the buildings, and, all the, and, and, and the, the philosophers are still in, in great number. You'll see them. And there at the top, at the highest point, there is the temple to Athena. And she's sitting in there. And just below it, there is this area where the philosophers will gather, known as the Areopagus, or known as Mars Hill. It's named after the god Mars. Okay, so, so, so he shows up, but what he notices about Athens is that the city is buried, is the literal word. It's drowning. It's covered up completely by idols. And it affects him. Because as a Christian... We see things differently. When you became a Christian, you started to see things differently than they are now. Okay, than than the way they used to be. You see things differently now than the way they used to be. You, You see things and it stirs up in you. Some kind of response. And, and, and a question I would have for you to check your own, your own heart is, do I see things differently? as a Christian than I did when I wasn't a Christian? Have my eyes changed? Has, my, has the way I see the world changed at all? Because it should have. Paul knows what G.K. Chesterton talks about when he says, well, where man ceases to worship God, he doesn't stop worshiping anything. Rather, he begins to worship everything. And as he looks around Athens, talk about what he felt. That's what he saw. What did he feel? He was greatly distressed. Literally, it provokes him. As in, think of the Old Testament where it says that the Lord was provoked to anger. Provoked. That's the same word. 
He's distressed. He's prov- there's, a, there's a reaction that swells up. The idolatry that he sees alarms him to the point that he has to speak out. He has to preach. Now, he was going to wait for his companions. Do you remember that? But what he saw and what he feels have changed the plans so that he's not going to wait. He has to speak up and he has to say something because his heart for this people, it's impressive, isn't it? That he cares about these people. He, He can't stand to be silent when he sees what's happening to these people. That they're being smothered by these idols. And so he can't stay silent. And I wonder, boy, this is where it's going to get scary. Todd, this is where it's going to get scary. I'm sorry. I wonder if the reason the church today stays so silent is because if we're really dead level honest, we just don't care. But Paul looks at them dying, drowning in idolatry, and he can't not say anything. He has to speak up. He has to make an appeal. So where does he go? Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue. Surprise. We've seen that this is his customary approach. Everywhere he goes, he goes and finds the synagogue. Then he's going to teach. So he reasons in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. But notice the next part, as well as the marketplace. There's something different about Athens that makes him change his customary tactic to where it's no longer about simply going to the synagogue. Instead, he's going to go out to the marketplace where there is a larger group of people and he's day by day going to be with those who just happen to be there. You see, what's interesting is he goes to the marketplace. He doesn't start a riot. He starts a conversation. And and, and what's amazing is there are a lot of believers who may want to start a conversation, but they're worried they don't have the right answers. And I'll tell you this, more and more, you don't need the right answers. What you need are a few really good questions. And you can start an amazing Jesus conversation. But boy, we have to... We have to develop a marketplace ministry. Christians, church, we have to develop a marketplace ministry. We cannot simply open the doors of the church and say, come and get it. We have to recover an understanding of the need to go into the marketplace. Listen to me, Field of Dreams is a great movie, but it is a worthless and wrong evangelism strategy. If you build it, they'll come. No, they won't. 22% of Americans, according to Pew Research, 22% of Americans, that's one in five Americans, more than one in five Americans identify themselves as having no religious affiliation. Since 1991... I know that sounds like a long time ago to this side, but we're talking about things in my lifetime, so let's stop with that. Just hold your comments. Since 1991, and I'm doing my math here, 
31 years? Okay, good. I'm not great at math, but I got that. 31 years. In the last 31 years, the number of people who do not attend church has doubled in the United States. We must recover and commit to ourselves a passionate understanding of marketplace ministry where we will enter into the world and just talk about Jesus with them there. We need an everyday church with an everyday mission. Paul shows up, verse 18, and he's going to start talking with the skeptics. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He went out into the marketplace and he was preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And some philosophers hear him and they want to say something about it. Now, I'm not going to belabor you with ancient philosophy. I will simply summarize and say this. Epicureans, they believed that the chief purpose in life was to pursue pleasure. Now, not in the sense of a hedonistic, wild living style. As a matter of fact, what they would say is that pleasure is to be free from pain, free from your extreme passions, and free from superstitions. To just learn how to be content. That's the goal. A life without pain. It's the best you can do. There are a lot of Epicureans out in the marketplace today. The Stoics, they pursued moral sincerity and would cultivate duty by being unaffected by the changes of life, good or bad. The point is to not let the highs be too high or the lows be too low. Just write it out. There are a lot of Stoics in the world today. All right. What he saw, what he felt, where he went. Went to the marketplace. What did he say? What did he say? So, look, they don't necessarily love that he's there. They don't all like what everything he's saying. However, they bring him to a meeting. They go to the Areopagus. Look at verses 19 and following. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, Hey, can we know this new teaching that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Novelty was in. And I'm going to tell you, it still is. Got to watch out. Just because something's new doesn't mean there's actual substance to it. Because that's the danger of liking novelty so much. Paul stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus there at Mars Hill. And he said, what did he say? Here we go. People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. I see that in every way you're very religious. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I want to tell you about that unknown God. 
You see, what he does that's interesting in Acts chapter 17 with Athens is that he establishes a point of contact with the people. He doesn't begin from Scripture. He begins from a recognition of their spirituality and their religiosity. Now, in doing that, he's not going to relativize everything and say, and that's as good as any God. What he's doing is he's making a point of contact. Now, that's important. When we go into the marketplace, we want to make a point of contact with this world. Now, what's coming, and this is the part, honestly, we don't like. We enjoy finding points of contact. Ready? You make a point of contact so that, honestly, you can make a point of conflict. Now, not so that you can fight people and beat them up. Although, Paul was more gracious than me, like... He's getting like riots and stuff started and and he's handling it pretty well. I'd be like, do you want to have a fist fight? Do you want to catch these hands? Like I I would not be okay in those situations. But, But Paul seems to do better. But he's not trying to hurt them when he makes the point of conflict. He's trying to turn the world upside down and say, are you sure that that's what you really believe? He's trying to ask the right questions. Okay, but he starts by making the point of contact. The unknown God is Paul's touch point with these people. Then he's going to move into the meat of the message there in verses 24 and following. He says, the God, and I love what he does, because in such a short time, he is going to go from, he's going to tell them the entire story of Scripture. He's going to do it so quickly. He's going to start with creation, and he's going to end with the final judgment. Right? He's going to tell them the whole story. Pay attention to how he does it. It's really cool. The God who made the world and everything in it, who is God? He's the creator. First thing out of the chute, God is the creator. The God that you don't know, he made everything. God who made the world and everything in it, the creator. And then under the shadow of of the temple of Athena at the city's highest point, he tells them what? I love it. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He he doesn't live in temples like the ones we're looking at. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God, God doesn't need anything from us. God is still God even if we don't recognize it. Just like the sun still shines even if you can't see it. Okay, God is still God. We don't, rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God doesn't need anything from you. God is the giver of the things you need. God is the creator and God is the sustainer. All right, look at what he says next. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He is the ruler of nations. He is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the ruler of nations. And, and, and I want, okay, I'll make a note here real quick. Diversity is God's idea. He, he's the one who spread it all out. Diversity's God. If you don't like diversity, you have a problem with God. 
He's, he's the ruler of all the nations and he set it up for a reason just like this. He spread us out. So why? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. God spread us out so that we would recognize our need for him. Reach out for him and feel for him and find him. And he's not far from us. As a matter of fact, for in him we live, we move, and we have our very being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. God is creator, God is sustainer, God is ruler of nations, and God is father. This is a pretty good sermon so far. Okay, A.W. Tozer, theologian A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think the word God. He is creator, he is sustainer, he is the ruler of nations, and he is your father. Knowing who God is reveals to us who we are. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. We are God's children, and so we owe our worship to God, not to idols. Kenny, that song we sang, all, all this is for your glory, for your glory. We are his children. We owe him all the glory. Because of who we are as his children, we know what our job is. We owe him all the glory. We owe God all of our worship. And when I look around and I see all the idols y'all are drowning under, I just can't stay quiet. Because you're giving the glory that is due to God to someone else who doesn't deserve it. Now in the past, verse 30, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In the past, God overlooked. God's been patient, not absent. He offers a call to repent, letting us know that we are, what we are supposed to do. Then look at verse 31. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proofs of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul's first introduction to Jesus with these people is as a righteous judge. Now think about that, because that's not usually where we start, especially with the skeptics. To introduce Jesus as the righteous judge... But what's he really doing? He's completing the story that he's telling. The story that goes, the story of the gospel from creation to final judgment. Notice he mentioned in verse 26 that there was one man from whom all nations were made, Adam. And now we conclude with one man that God has appointed, the new Adam, Jesus, to judge And he raised him from the dead. And it's right here that he's introducing his point of conflict with their culture. Biblical scholar Tony Merida has pointed out four traits of Paul the missionary that I think have special relevance to him being an example 
of what it means to live as a community of mission. The first thing he says is Paul was always consistent. Wherever he went, he was thinking about Jesus. He was looking through the lenses of Jesus, and he thought about how to share Jesus. He's consistent. His primary goal is to share Jesus everywhere he goes. Second thing is Paul was comprehensive. He doesn't assume that those he's speaking to know anything about Christ. He often covers the whole story of the Bible. Third thing, and this is where we get a 50-cent word, Paul used contextualization. Okay, what that means is not that his, the, the core of his message changed. What changed was the way he shared it. The way he talked to his audience based upon where they came from, that when he got to Athens, he didn't do it the same way that he did it in the synagogue. Sharing the same gospel, but he was sharing it in a way that they could hear it. He put it in their context, and he found a point of contact and then a point of conflict with those folks. And the last, Paul had courage. He had compassionate courage, even in intimidating situations. And the question is, if we lived like that, what would happen? If we were that kind of community, what would happen? I want to call Kenny, you and your team up. I want to call the prayer team up. And I want to notice the reactions that take place once again in verses 32 and 33. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Now, some people, when they hear us proclaim the gospel of Jesus resurrected, are going to sneer. It's not what they want to hear. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. They're interested, but they're not urgent. And at that, Paul left the council. I don't know if he was planning on ending the sermon right there in 31, but boy, they shut it down, didn't they? He got the resurrection and they were like, all right, you can stop. Some people said, no thanks, and made fun of him. Some people said, I want to hear more, but we'll see. Whenever time is, is right, maybe you'll get to share again. But pay attention. Verse 34, or verse 33, at that, Paul left the council 34. Some of the people became followers and believed. Some believe. You see, we see that God is at work and lives are changed by the gospel. So what does it mean for us to be led by the Spirit and be a community of mission? What should we see? The world around us is beautiful and the world is broken. Do you see it? What should we feel? We should feel a longing for Jesus to receive the worship He's due. We should feel a longing for people to know the purpose of their life to give God glory and to honor Christ. Where should we go? Everywhere, especially outside these walls. And what should we say? We should share the true story of the whole world culminating in the reign of Jesus. Because that's good news and we have good news to share. Amen. 
Rochester Church of Christ is called to live God's gospel, truth, and love with the world so that we all may find life together in God. We are not a perfect people, but we long to live in ways that help people see God and the kingdom more clearly. To learn more about our family of faith or to connect with us, visit www.rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and chosen.